ultimately, a technology stack matters less than how you use it. And so the right architecture is way more important than what programming language you chose to implement. Irina Kretschmer has been the CTO of Blue Apron for a little more than a year. When she was hired, her objective was to help guide the company through the process of upgrading its technology stack. While that remains one of her primary responsibilities to date, certain world events have shifted priorities in ways neither she nor anyone else could have expected. So what happens when your company goes from an important business to an essential one? And how do you properly pivot to make sure your technology stack is scalable when called upon? Irina joined IT Visionaries to discuss how Blue Apron made those changes, and she explains the role food delivery services will play moving forward. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm your host, Albert Chow, and today I have a special guest, Irina Kretschmer. She is the CTO of Blue Apron and previously the VP of Engineering at XO Group. She started her career with her fingers on the keyboard, actually developing, and now she is the CTO of one of the most famous meal delivery services in the business. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, let's go. We want to get right into it, okay? Because food delivery, as we know right now, it's hot. We know that things have changed dramatically during the pandemic. Tell us what that meant for you right out of the gate at Blue Apron. Because you started relatively recently at Blue Apron as a newer CTO. Just over a year ago, yes. That's right. Right away, I'm guessing the influx of orders and demands introduced to you, it just introduced new stresses. Tell me about what you saw right out of the gate, um, what that was what that was like, and how you knew something had materially changed. What literally changed overnight is that we went from being a very important business to literally an essential business. If you think about it, especially at the height of the pandemic, when, um, where, when a lot of uh, you know, areas were on true lockdowns, Blue Apron was literally the best way or sometimes the only way for people to get fresh food in the door. Uh, if you remember, you know, something that was actually very recently, but seems like forever ago, right back in March, supermarkets had empty shelves. People were kind of struggling to get the necessities. And so we at the time, were getting a lot of notes from customers just thanking us for staying open and for continuing to deliver food. As far as the challenges that this, is, that this posed, what became very clear, you know, at least for me, because Blue Apron is essentially my first foray into kind of a physical product space, was that scaling operational capacity overnight is actually much more complex than scaling technology. What we ended up doing, we had to make some really fast and sometimes difficult decisions on a spot. For example, we had to significantly reduce the number of recipes that we were offering to our customers in order specifically to reduce operational complexity so that we could get more boxes out. 
And, you know, in some cases, we had to close delivery windows for some of the sold out dates, basically, where we no longer had capacity. And so what it surfaced on the technical side was some edge cases that we didn't even know we had to address, you know, that we just never came across them. So the team had to work essentially overnight to get a lot of those cases buttoned up to make sure that we can actually support them. And then at the same time, we still knew that our overall strategy of adding variety, adding choices, adding, you know, a lot of options to our customers was still the right strategy, even as the pandemic continued. So we wanted to kind of wrap up all the fires as soon as possible and continue working on our strategic initiatives, which, um, you know, the team did an amazing job doing. So, you know, we're still in the middle of the pandemic and we were able to launch our premium recipes. We were able to add uh, the number of recipes that we are letting customers to add to their boxes. We are letting them order multiple boxes per cycle. And we're actually about to roll out our recipe customizations. So this is a fascinating thing because the story kind of repeats itself. And then yet it's always a surprise. I feel like it's always a surprise, mainly because no one ever knows where the stress test is going to break the system, right? Because you kind right. of talked about it before at the XO group we're used to be at, the not, you know, or let's say the bump, right? If there's a rapid increase in wedding registries or baby registries, right. I feel like that's a very one-sided problem, meaning like you fix your side of the house and then the customer receives the result. But in your case now with Blue Apron, you have two sides of the house, right? You have the customer and then you also have the supply chain and the operational, it's a multi-side operational logistics like you talked about, right? So if people all of a sudden exploded in orders, let's say for, because if I remember during the pandemic, they were talking about there might be meat shortages, meat processing plants were closing down, COVID cases were going up. So you're talking about, hey, we have extra demand. Your data could have told you all day long that meat demand is up, but that doesn't mean you can get access to it. Luckily for us, we work with a lot of smaller suppliers and we have a pretty good control over our supply chain. We know exactly where ingredients come from. So we actually, you know, knock on wood, we haven't experienced any major shortages that uh, impacted specifically our supply chain. Got it. Okay. But there's still that layer of, so if you have the control on the supply chain side, there's still that layer of systems that are almost a little out of your control. So you kind of talked about making adjustments, operational adjustments, for example, decreasing the number of recipes. Yep. Talk to me about how that, from a technological level, what made you guys decide to choose that? Was, the, was there some type of data monitoring that you would put in place that said, okay, this is going to happen or this needs to happen? How did you operationally come to that conclusion? I mean, if you think about it, this is almost a mathematical problem, right? The more choices you have, the more variety you have. The more variety you have, the more complexity you have. And, uh, you know, with complexity comes a reduction in operational capacity. So just imagine a pack line, right, where you have bits of ingredients alongside the pack line and our fulfillment center associates basically putting those ingredients into boxes, right? Each box can have 50 plus different ingredients, right? So, you know, when you start that pack line planning, you start off by, okay, let's group all the boxes with the same recipes together, right? So that we can just kind of keep packing them without stopping, right? You know, you put all the ingredients for those boxes along the pack line and your associates just drop, drop them one by one into the boxes, right? But then when you are finished with that segment, 
and you need to start packing boxes with different recipes, right? You need to stop. You need to change those beans. You need to replace them with different ingredients. And while you're doing that, your associates are basically just waiting for that to happen, right? So for that period of time, you're not packing. That impacts your overall capacity, right? So it becomes literally an optimization and almost like a data optimization problem where the less variety you have, the less changeover you have, the, less cap- the more capacity you ultimately have. Gotcha. And when you, for your role specifically, do you, I guess, rely on outside vendors to build technology solutions to measure these elements in analytics? Or are you, you building systems inside your own company to not only, of course, collect the orders from customers and measure their customer success, but also measuring all your internal systems? Is that how you're approaching it? Or basically, I'm asking, are you relying on third-party tools? Are you building your own stack to figure this out? It's really both, right? So from the consumer perspective, from kind of our consumer-facing platform perspective, we use some open source technology and we build on top of it. There's not a ton that's available out of the box specifically for meal kit industry. There's a lot more complexity there than, uh, you know, in your standard uh, kind of e-commerce platforms. Mm-hmm. And if, if you kind of layer on top of it, the subscription aspect of it, uh, there's a lot that, um, you know, Blue Apron team rightfully so built from scratch. And then on the operational side, similarly, we use some industry tools, we use some homegrown tools. On the analytics side, uh, you know, we don't reinvent the wheel. We use, um, we use BigQuery, we use Looker, uh, you know, we... We use basically industry standard tools there. Gotcha. And when you kind of paint a picture for us, so for our listeners, one of the big things that, because you, I'd argue that you've been in almost two transitions, right? You came from EXO Group to Blue Apron, but then you also hit pandemic, which changed things very fast. Talk to me about, I guess, coming from EXO to Blue Apron. Obviously, the first thing you got to do is figure out what's going on. Where did you look for or were you looking for opportunities to improve the business? I start off, actually... That thinking in terms of what opportunities there are, it actually starts for me during the interview process. Mm. I'm a big fan of a lot of interviews. I'm a big fan of multiple rounds. I like to meet as many people as possible okay. and uh, you know, do it not in one day, but actually do it in multiple rounds so that I could kind of process what I heard, let's say, in my day one, and then can ask more questions of different people in my subsequent round of interviews. This way, there's no surprises. I mean, there wasn't any surprises for me when I joined Blue Apron. I, f- I felt pretty confident that I, I knew what I was getting myself into. And so that kind of approach to really listening and uh, trying to understand the full picture basically continues in my first weeks and months. And, and frankly, continues every day, right? Because there's no way yeah. one person can understand the magnitude of every single problem that's happening in the company, right? So the more I talk to people and not just in tag, but really across the company, people in our digital product, physical product areas, culinary operations, logistics, uh, the more I talk to people, the more I understand the full scope of the problem, the better I'm positioned to fix it, right? I think what strikes me the most coming from XO, where our product was basically a digital-only product, is all of the additional complexity that comes from building digital experiences and tools 
in front of physical products and not just digital products. I mean, that, this complexity extends all the way from planning to execution. You can't just roll out a new feature. Um, you know, you have to keep in mind procurement cycles, culinary cycles. You have to keep in mind, are we adding operational complexity by adding this feature? And what, is it, what this is going to do to our capacity? You even have to keep in mind uh, inclement weather events, right? And, uh, you know, the impact it has on customers and therefore, you know, their experience and functionality and logistics of it, et cetera, et cetera. So that additional complexity was really, I think, the biggest learning for me. And I'm, you know, to this day, I'm continuing to learn that. So that's a great point. I think some people would find that limiting, Mm. right? Or maybe... How did you approach that challenge? Because you kind of just hit on it, right? You were introduced to new variables that you had to account for. Yep. That you just didn't have to account for back at your previous roles, right? Like you mentioned the weather. Like that wasn't really a concern, I don't think. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean, to a degree, if it rains on your day of the wedding. That's true. uh, You kind of have to figure it out. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily as important for the digital tools that we built for the couples. That's right. So, you know, when when you first heard these because you mentioned before that before you took the job, you kind of knew a lot about it. And then when you went in, you interviewed all the, as many staff members as possible to figure out exactly what's going on inside the systems. So when you were introduced to these new variables, was that exciting? Was that nerve wracking? How did you feel when you were introduced to things that, you know, you just weren't as familiar with? I mean, a little bit of both, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel like, you know, I feel like if you start a new job and you're a hundred percent comfortable, that's probably not the right job. I feel like with every new job, you have to be at least a little bit uncomfortable. This to me is a great indication that you're learning something. So yeah, so it was a little bit of both. Um, But I think first and foremost, what this pointed out to me is an increase in importance of collaboration, right? Uh, So in, in a traditional digital product environment, you have your squad, you know, that is your engineering team, your product manager and, you know, your designer, right? And, you know, this is the team that can make all the decisions, uh, obviously collaborate, but, and, you know, they can build, test, release everything that they need to do, right? When you need to account for all these extra variables, it just puts collaboration front and center, right? You need, uh, you're not in a vacuum, you need to really talk to a lot of people. But that actually, to me, while it may seem limited, this is actually a big value add because when you have a working group that has input from all these different aspects, the end result is just that much more better. Yeah. So I, th- I think of it as operating within constraints, right? Because you, you mentioned before, like, you had this, yeah, some limitations. And I think back to, you know, for anyone's new to our show or listening for the first time, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, I think that's exactly what I always think of for operating <laughs> constraints. Have you seen Apollo 13? Arena? I did, yes. I know it's over-dramatized movie, but still, the spacecraft is stuck in space. They have to get it back to Earth, and the lead engineer throws out like a bunch of objects on the tables like, hey, we need to get this thing back. It has no power, and this is all that's on the, the craft. <laughs> and they like, yeah. get to work. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes... The, some of the biggest innovations come from small teams, big constraints. What were some of like the surprising innovations that you were really excited about to bring to customers or internal, uh, if it was an internal project, that you were able to develop here? Right. Um, I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. At the height of the pandemic, we were brainstorming how we can 
basically get more food to our customers. And one of our engineers overnight built a prototype that basically allowed us to, uh, allowed customers to order additional boxes per week. Like a typical meal kit model is you order a box in a week, right? You choose your mm-hmm. recipes, you know, and that is your order for that week. So this idea that, hey, well, uh, we offer wine subscription, right? In addition to our food subscription. And as you know, wine was very much in demand, right? Um, during the pandemic. And so what if people want a second box of wine? We recently introduced a meal prep option as uh, one of our plans. So what if people want to order meal prep to use for lunches and then their regular box to use for dinners? Previously, we didn't really have that capabilities. We just didn't have enough demand for it. And so this idea of creating multiple boxes uh, or letting customers order multiple boxes per week was just something that one of our engineers came up with, prototyped. This was also one of the examples of we couldn't just release it because we still had to do analysis yeah. on uh, what impact this would have on operational capacity on our procurement. But, uh, you know, so we had to spend a little bit of extra time doing that analysis, but we actually just released that feature to our customers. That's awesome. And I mean, no num- hard numbers yet, but early results, is it being received well? Is it, how's it doing? We only released it to half of our customers. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit too early to tell. Gotcha. But, you know, people are using it. That makes sense. Can you see, I feel like, so if I think, take a look to my own eating consumption habits, I'll go pre-pandemic and then post, right? Pre-pandemic, I knew a Blue Apron. I tried it a couple times. I didn't stay subscribed. Mm-hmm. You know, shame on me, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't say, stay subscribed because I didn't feel like I needed that much. You know, I was okay with just cooking. But fast forward to pandemic. Now I'm thinking about like, I wonder if there's more regular grocery delivery services if people would subscribe to it. Because I look at myself, right? And I know meal kits are increasing. I, I hear what you're saying. Different demand is increasing. And I think to myself how I get recurring, there's kind of things I get on a recurring basis. Tell me about like how you evaluate products, innovations. How do you choose what to explore to bring to customer? I feel like, cause I, you know, that's something I would start exploring. That's just me personally, but sure. to see if like, would people just want recurring grocery delivery? Like, Hey, just send this guy blueberries every month. Cause he eats a lot of it. <laughs> sure. I mean, just to go back to what you said before I answer your question, what's happening specifically right now Yes, people cook more at home and all the research, all the analysis that we've done from different sources points to people cooking more at home. And even you mentioned that you cook more, albeit, you know, maybe not using meal kits, right? Right. But at the same time, people still want more variety and people actually kind of are missing out on some of that variety by not being able to go out to it, right? A lot of restaurants close permanently. Um, there's a limited opportunity to go out to eat. So even people who used to just cook on their own using their go-to recipes are now craving more variety. And meal kits are providing that variety without actually needing them to think about what they need to cook, what kind of ingredients they need to cook to plan it in advance a lot of people actually ended up with less time on their hands rather than more time on their hands, right? With yeah. childcare, homeschooling, uh, health issues, et cetera, et cetera. So 
you know, Milk Kid is just expanding in popularity because of all of these reasons. And then to answer your question as far as how we make decisions, we definitely use data a lot, right? We, there's an aspect of a gut feel in every product development, obviously, but we try to ground our um, decisions in data as much as possible. I'll give you a very basic example. Traditionally, we were only allowing our customers on a two-person plan to order three recipes per week. And uh, we didn't have necessarily a ton of demand beyond that. And then we started noticing that a lot more people are ordering three recipes as opposed to two recipes. So that was the first signal that maybe people are needing more. But before we expanded it to the fourth recipe, we actually started tracking an error message that customers got when they tried to add a fourth recipe without removing one. Did you plant that error message? Like you intended that to happen or it was... I mean, that, that error message was a legitimate business case. If we were only letting people add three recipes and they're trying to add a fourth one, the error message was politely telling them to remove one of the ones that they already have chosen Got it. and replace them, right? So that was a legitimate error message. We just weren't tracking it as much, right? So we actually specifically took a look at the rate of that error message. And when that one went up, that was a clearest signal that, yes, there is going to be a demand for the fourth recipe. And that's exactly what we just rolled out. No, that's, that's awesome. And then obviously we are looking at things like recipe ratings. We are looking at reviews. We are looking for what people are choosing, you know, just to continue adding uh, new ingredients, continue assessing how people are reacting to new ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things I think about that's a unique challenge that you have in the food, in the food industry is that the history of food innovation has followed data that has led people astray. And I'll use a couple examples mm -hmm. and kind of ask a question for you. So I think of like the McArch Deluxe, right? McDonald's released that product. They certainly field tested it. They product tested it. They had all the data suggested that that was going to be a winner. Wasn't a winner. Mm -hmm. Crystal Pepsi, same thing. Crystal Pepsi. I'm aging myself now. I'm, I'm 40. But I remember as a kid when Crystal Pepsi first came out, I was like, this is cool. I remember buying it, but other, no one else did apparently. And that went by the wayside as well. <laughs> it went through a similar experience. More recently, for, I feel bad, McDonald's, this is my, another use case, but McDonald's launched the, uh, the Mighty Wings. And like, I remember reading how they lost hundreds of millions of dollars, even though it had taste tested supremely good. Customers reviewed it. They said they would buy it. But then when it went to market, it didn't happen. So I was wondering, you know, food seems to have this unique thing where people can give it a high rating yet still choose something else. How does you at Blue Apron, do you account for that or do you look for that or are you worried about that? Is that something that is in your consideration set for when you guys make decisions? So what you just described is actually more of a qualitative rating than a quantitative one, right? When they did taste tests, right, with customers. I'm sure it was a focus group of however many customers, but it's still a very, very small subset of their customer base, right? And um, I read, um, I think it's a pretty known fact that there's an aspect in the focus group environment where people who are participating in focus groups, they're trying to please, right? Oh. So they often, they often give more positive feedback as part of those focus groups. You know, not everybody is bold enough to say, I hate it, right? So they're trying to be nice and they're, you know, they're saying they like it, right? 
So that's why it's just so important to combine both, you know, such qualitative user interview-based ratings or feedback with uh, real live data, right? That's why I'm really big fan, and we as a company are really big fans of doing betas, uh, rolling out product into a small subset of customers first to actually see it in action and collect real data before betting on it 100%. No, it makes sense. I appreciate you going through that with us. So when I th- also think about meal kits, the industry, mm-hmm. I feel like you know a couple of years ago, there was Blue Apron and not much else. Now I feel like there's a lot. There's definitely a lot of options to choose from. What innovations without, you know, you don't have to reveal anything <laughs> that's in private, like stealth mode, but what innovations do you see? What avenues or lanes do you see that Blue Apron's got to improve to maintain its leader, you know, leading position or build its market share? Where's your energy being focused right now? So first of all, uh, you know, just kind of hit on the point of a lot of different milked companies, which is true. You know, there's a lot of them out there. Some of them, um, I survive and some of them are not, right? Right. I think what Blue Apron has going for us, um, and really that was uh, one of the main focus uh, really since day one, is a strong um, focus on culinary authority, uh, the quality of ingredients, the quality of recipes, really the ability to elevate kind of everyday, you know, everyday dining for our customers. And that continues to be a really, really big focus for us. And then more broadly, um, you know, we announced our strategy about a year ago of adding more flexibility, more variety, more choices for customers. And that's really where our focus continues to be. Because again, you know, customers, especially in these days of kind of limiting options, uh, they are looking for more variety, even in home cooking, right? Because typically... Home cooks, you know, they don't use meal kits. They have a set of recipes that they rely on day in and day out. And uh, when you cook every day and you only have kind of a small repertoire of recipes to choose from, that kind of gets stale, right? And so, uh, you know, this variety and the ability to customize what you order from us is um, really, really important. Yeah, I'm living proof of what you just talked about mm-hmm. there. I think I only cook, I only cook, you know, I, me and my wife make food seven days a week right now. I think we have seven recipes total, like, we, you know, every dinner. Exactly. And you don't necessarily have time to expand it, right? You know, that it, it just, it requires research. It requires figuring out what recipes are out there. Or if you start with ingredients, you have to go out and buy something and then figure out how to use it and then potentially deal with food waste. I hate it when, you know, I look up a recipe online and it sounds so compelling, but it requires four different kinds of spices. And then if I buy each of them, they're just going to end up sitting somewhere, you know, on the counter and I'm not going to use them again until six months later. Oh yeah. One of my favorite cuisines is Indian and I, I checked <laughs> out like some of the recipe guides and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like 35 things listed here <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> to make one thing. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things you've talked a lot about and hinted at a lot about how data is driving the decisions. How about actually implementing the projects? Uh, you've been in the development role for you know a good period of time. Has your over your career? What have you seen evolved? Technologies evolved that have helped you implement the project. So it's one thing to have information that says, "Hey, this might be an opportunity." The next thing is to build something to capitalize on that opportunity. What's the biggest difference that you've seen evolve, and what do you hope to change that enables you to? Because I think every developer 
thinks the same way, which is they want to build better products faster, right? What are some of the changes you're seeing in regards to toolkits available, programming languages that are helping you accelerate innovation? I think what I've seen is that the technology, like there's a popular perspective that it's super important what technology stack you choose. And yes, it is important, but ultimately, ultimately a technology stack matters less than how you use it. And so the right architecture is way more important than what programming language you chose to implement. Obviously, you know, there's always a better tool for the job, but there's also always multiple tools that can do that same job well. So I think my first learning is that it's important not to get hung up on um, what technology stack you choose. You know, go with the expertise of your team is, go where the industry, you know, has a lot of support and just don't waste too much time uh, trying to find just the perfect tool for the job, right? That's my first learning. The second learning is, and it's a positive and a negative, there's obviously a lot more frameworks out there right now compared with when I started in software engineering. And on one hand, it's a good thing. Um, Like you said, it allows people to build products much, much, much faster. But I also feel that sometimes it creates this notion of a black box where people don't bother to understand what that framework is actually doing under the hood. And, uh, you know, that potentially creates scalability issues. It potentially creates, you know, other issues that people potentially could have avoided if they, you know, just took a little bit of time understanding how the framework actually works. Other than that, I'm always much more excited actually about the applicability of technologies uh, or to put it in, in different words about the actual products that we are building with technology and uh, you know technology is just a tool right you know when people use a particular technology just to use it it's often a waste right it's often a waste of effort it's often a waste of resources that could potentially be spent elsewhere I think you just, by the way, you, you burst the dream of every sales rep out there. That's okay though. <laughs> <laughs> they always want you to try it. Like, oh, you should just try it. It's like, well, I don't, yeah. I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to try it because, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to, like you just said, I don't know the downstream upstream effects. I've built my own infrastructure and architecture. Everything's working pretty good. Someone says this works faster though. I was like, well, I don't want to plug it in. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. And ultimately how, how is this technology going to help me solve that business problem? that is top of mind for me right now. There you go. When you think of some of the cool applications and use cases of data and existing accelerated products, you mentioned before these like small teams. Is that how you operate as well inside Blue Apron? Do you, do you constantly build small teams to evaluate and challenge problems? Like how do you go about, because you, you mentioned it yourself, you sit at the top of an organization that is, let's just say it's large. It's got a lot, it's got a lot of moving parts, right? You also said very clearly, you can't possibly know it all, right? Yep. So is that how you, your approach is? Typically, it's like the CEO or someone else in the board or you guys have the board meeting and say, hey, this is an area we want to attack or this is an opportunity that we see available. And then you build like a Skunk Works team. How do you build your teams to handle these problems? That's a great question. There's multiple angles to it, really. First of all, we don't do this top-down way of building things the way you described. It's not going to be 
uh, an executive team decision or a board meeting's decision to build XYZ, right? What's typically somewhat top down is business goals, right? We are shooting for this kind of revenue or this many new customers or, um, you know, this much, you know, market share or whatnot. But then it's ultimately up to the teams to figure out how we are going to accomplish it, right? And brainstorm and figure out what uh, we want to offer and prioritize it. My big belief is that people who are the closest to the problem are best positioned to solve it. So I try as much as possible to really push decision-making to the teams and, uh, you know, with the guardrails of those business goals, but ultimately the teams are the ones who are the best positioned to make those decisions to, again, make proposals, to iterate on them and to figure out what we want to do as a company. Do your team members want to rotate? Because I think about back to some of the software companies I worked at. Mm -hmm. I know, for example, we called them the bug killers, but I'm sure you have a different name for them, the QA teams that fix all the, uh, the bugs that are identified inside systems. But all the developers that were on QA, they didn't want to be there. Like they wanted to do something else. So I didn't know, do you have like rotations? How do you, I guess, how do you keep it fresh? Oh, we don't specialize this way. We have a team that is focused on our consumer facing applications. We have a team that is focused on our operations and logistics. We have a team that is responsible for all aspects of our data, but that's how we specialize. We don't specialize by having a team that just does new development versus a team that does support maintenance and, you know, squashing bugs, right? Yeah. We don't do it this way. You know, we, we really want everybody to be fully invested into what they're building and uh, really feeling like they're making a difference. So what are some of the benefits that you've seen from building teams in that fashion that you described, which is not so much specific, but like it sounds more like what you're talking about is like a level of almost domain expertise. I don't know how to best describe it, you know, where it's not so compartmentalized of a role. What are some of the benefits you've seen doing it the way you do it? I think the biggest benefit is the sense of ownership, right? Uh, You know, people understand their domain. People care not just about, again, a particular technology or particular implementation details. They truly care about the customer experience. And in the case of consumer facing, that would be our customers who order the boxes. In the case of operations and logistics, their customers are our internal users, you know, for example, our culinary team that uses our tooling, you know, for them to create recipes. And so that sense of ownership is the biggest benefit, right? Uh, Obviously, you know, there are other benefits. If you work within a particular domain, you understand the systems better, you can troubleshoot quicker, you can uh, make decisions better. But that, that to me is secondary. No, that makes sense. And then I'm also curious, because you kind of, you mentioned it a little bit, how do you handle, because you're soft, you know, you've been in software companies now, Blue Apron to the consumer is a software company their main interactions are through the website and of course the products, but let's go with a software technology related problem. How do you handle problems? Because we know the modern consumer has I would say close to no patience for, yep. <laughs> for downtime or, or problems. How are you under fire? Because like software is, it's an imperfect thing, right? Technology is imperfect. There are going to be downs, blips, you know, you might ship code that causes a problem. Not you personally, but you know, someone on your team does that. Yep. How do you handle these challenges and problems? What is your process for resolution? How do you keep people, I guess, calm while fixing it? Because 
I've worked at places where the owner of this process was like running around like a madman and people got, you know, it raised everyone's nerves. They weren't cool under pressure. I was like, fix this. And then like, that doesn't help anybody. Right. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your approach. Cause like you said, you have so many customers hitting your site at any given time. You know, obviously downtime would cause a problem. Absolutely. I think what I said before really applies here as well. The sense of ownership is where it all starts. We do have your typical on-call rotation, right, within each functional area, right? So when something does break, people would get an alert and, you know, whoever is on call will jump in and start fixing it. And, um, you know, they are going to jump in and do it, not because I am there, you know, running around and telling them to fix it, right? You know, they're going to jump in and fix it because they care about the customers who need to use it. We're also very judicious about kind of our SLAs, if you will, right? There are areas where when something is down is a true emergency and people know it and people don't think twice about jumping in and fixing it in the middle of the night. And then there are areas where, hey, you know what, it's a problem, but it can wait till morning, right? And uh, I think by being judicious like that and only asking people to deal with something as an emergency when it's a true emergency also makes people feel like they're addressing a true problem as opposed to an arbitrary problem because somebody just cares about some numbers. No, I like that. I like the fact that you you're, you know, make it clear what is a massive priority versus right. what can, like you, you said next morning. I feel like, the, you know, I feel like you're about to get some resumes hitting <laughs> because I know for a fact there's a lot of developers working for organizations that do not treat every bug like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like every bug's a fire. <laughs> Well, then, then you're going to end up with the chicken little situation, right? Yeah, everyone panicking. Exactly. Everyone's stressed. Exactly. So, Irina, you've been talking to us a lot about technology, innovation inside of Blue Apron, but I, I'm also curious, what do you see happening to the broader food industry? Because the food industry is being asked to do more than ever, and it's going to continue that way. As long as populations grow, we only have one earth, population is going to grow. There's going to be more demands for food, right? Now we're saying how it's distributed is changing very rapidly. I was curious in your mind, what are your, some of your thoughts on what are some of the broader innovations that are happening in the food industry overall? It's a great question. I think the food industry as a whole is really ripe for innovation, uh, really across the entire farm-to-table ecosystem. What we are seeing a lot is customers are increasingly more curious uh, where their food comes from, right? They're asking a lot more questions. They really want to know the provenance. And so it's been very interesting to see, for example, the emergence of a blockchain technology for better ingredients tracing and transparency. There is also a ton of innovation in the areas of reducing food waste and generally around minimizing environmental footprint. I think we're just scratching the surface there and uh, there's a ton of innovations that are not just digital innovation, but uh, more broadly technological innovation that I'm really excited about. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those topics. One of the things I think about, so I joke, I'm not going to lie. I joke inside a mission. I think I'm the only person who doesn't understand or foresee and understand the benefit of blockchain. Call <laughs> me dense. It's okay. <laughs> right? I'm here to learn though. <laughs> Specifically what, you know, let's use that in the supply chain. You talked about yep. the emergence of blockchain helping in the supply chain. Tell me how that would work theoretically, right? So I understand like 
I understand what blockchain is, but explain how that could actually help food safety. Specifically in this use case, the benefit of blockchain is its distributed nature and its transparency, right? You're not just relying on one database one vendor has sitting in a cloud somewhere in one place and um, as, as opposed to having this information be distributed across kind of the entire food chain where a lot of different small suppliers can tap into it, store that information, and the customers can be confident that that information is basically tamper-proof. Gotcha. So let's use an example. So I'll think back to there was um, there was a food outbreak of E. coli. Yep. The epidemiologist figured it came from spinach from a single farm. Yep. Right. But it took a while. I mean, the, the cases happened. Everyone got sick. The recalls were made. Yep. And then they traced it back eventually. Yep. It's actually very expensive to deal with recalls. Uh, we've, we've had to do it twice um, in uh, at least my tenure at Blue Apron. And, uh, you know, we do have fairly good tracing where we know exactly, again, where our ingredients come from. So we can trace it from where it came from to the customers where that ingredient was delivered. But it's still a lot of work, right? And so when, uh, you know, with, again, blockchain is just a technology, right? Uh, right? There are other ways to do it, but it's just an interesting way of how something that's kind of new to the market you know, can potentially benefit it in a very unique way. No, I see. I see exactly what you're saying. So I'm, I'm thinking if we were to go back to that spinach case, so like blockchain theoretically could identify that this single farm was the source of the outbreak. Correct. Identify, let's say, where that spinach had gone, like maybe to the exact bag numbers, because I think each bag has its own number. Yep. And you're saying it just... Yeah. And which, which customer? So in, in the case of retail, it could potentially trace it from the producer to the distributor to the supermarket to the register that sold it to potentially the customer who bought it perhaps you know through the credit card trace there you go and the modern way of unpacking that information is actually just a look through a ton of yep. i think paper records i think it's like literally people looking through the records of where's the bill of lading where did this ship to like <laughs> I, don't think, exactly. I don't think any of this data is centralized anywhere and that's why it takes so long to figure out where this problem started Exactly. Cool. Well, we're getting close to the end of our show, and that means it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360 Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. These are some fun questions, Irina, for our audience to get to better know you. Simple, short questions, simple, short answers. We want to hear a little bit more about you. Tell me, what is your favorite meal so far that you've had on Blue Apron? Uh, my favorite meal was my first meal, which was, um, and the reason it was favorite, my favorite was because it was my 13-year-old daughter who cooked it. Uh, and she did it from scratch and he had no prior cooking experience and it came out really, really good. Listen, all you parents out there, if you want your kids to cook you great meals, you just heard it from Irina, <laughs> Blue Apron is the, is the start. That's right. Do you have a favorite book or podcast? Um, it depends on which category, right? My, one of my favorite leadership books is the book called Drive by, by, by Dan Pink. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not familiar with that one. I believe there is a podcast uh, in addition to the book, so I highly recommend it. I also like Five Dysfunctions of a Team. 
this was something that I actually learned a lot from as I started taking on uh, more senior roles. What's the book Drive about? Five Dysfunctions of a Team I Feel Like is Self-Explanatory. What's Drive about? Uh, what I like about Drive, the main premise of Drive is what motivates people in um, professional fields. And uh, basically, the premise of a book is that uh, people are motivated by autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm. And it goes into you know, a good amount of detail on um, how it really fits into individual motivation. That's awesome. Who's your favorite band or artist to listen to music? I actually, I, I'm, I'm originally from Ukraine, so I actually listen a lot to Russian music, uh, not necessarily um, U.S. bands. Well, hey, that's totally fine. I grew up listening to Chinese music. My parents played it all the time. So, you know, yep. I understand completely. You would want to listen to where home is. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I listen to both, uh, but, yeah. you know, that's kind of uh, what makes me more comfortable. I listen to music when I need to be comfortable, and that's, that brings comfort. Gotcha. What's a great one-day getaway from New York, New York City? We just went to Beacon for a couple of days um, in upstate New York. Uh, had a really good time. What was great about it? Really good food. Really good food. Yes. I'm seeing a theme here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What is your best advice for a first-time CTO? Um, it's twofold. One is to listen a lot. And then uh, the second part is, um, as a CTO, you're not just responsible for technology. You really have to keep your business hat on and you really have to feel like you have a seat at the table and that you're part of running the company along with the rest of the executive team. There you go. So for any, for those up and coming technology leaders, kind of like what you hinted at before, if you're working in an organization where all the orders or requests are coming from the top down, where they're just telling you and you don't have a seat at the table, sounds like that's a stay away. Is that right? That is for me. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What's one question you never get asked, but you wish you were asked more often? I don't have a good answer for that one. I get asked a lot of questions and sometimes the ones that I wish I wasn't asked. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Irina, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Hope you had a great time. And for our audience out there, we will see you next episode. Thank you very much. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>